Chapter 13 of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trap in the Great Cellar. I suppose I must have swooned, for the next thing I remember I opened my eyes and all was dusk. I was laying on my back with one leg doubled under the other and Pepper was licking my ears. I felt horribly stiff and my leg was numb from the knee downward. For a few moments I lay thus in a dazed condition. Then slowly I struggled to a sitting position and looked about me. It had stopped raining, but the trees still dripped dismally. From the pit came a continuous murmur of running water. I felt cold and shivery. My clothes were sodden, and I ached all over. Very slowly the life came back into my numbed leg, and after a little I essayed to stand up. This I managed at the second attempt, but I was very tottery and peculiarly weak. It seemed to me that I was going to be ill, and I made shift to stumble my way toward the house. My steps were erratic and my head confused. At each step that I took, sharp pains shot through my limbs. I had gone perhaps some thirty paces when a cry from Pepper drew my attention, and I turned stiffly toward him. The old dog was trying to follow me, but could come no further owing to the rope with which I had hauled him up, and still being tied round his body, the other end not having been unfastened from the tree. For a moment I fumbled with the knots, weakly, but they were wet and hard, and I could do nothing. Then I remembered my knife, and in a minute the rope was cut. How I reached the house I scarcely know, and of the days that followed I remember still less. Of one thing I am certain that, had it not been for my sister's untiring love and nursing, I had not been writing at this moment. When I recovered my senses it was to find that I had been in bed for nearly two weeks. Yet another week passed before I was strong enough to totter out into the gardens. Even then I was not able to walk so far as the pit. I would have liked to ask my sister how high the water had risen, but felt it was wiser not to mention the subject to her. Indeed, since then I have made a rule never to speak to her about the strange things that happen in this great old house. It was not until a couple of days later that I managed to get across to the pit. There I found that in my few weeks' absence there had been wrought a wondrous change. Instead of the three-parts-filled ravine, I looked out upon a great lake whose placid surface reflected a light coldly. The water had risen to within half a dozen feet of the pit edge. Only in one part was the lake disturbed, and that was above the place where, far down under the silent waters, yawned the entrance to the vast underground pit. Here there was a continuous bubbling, and occasionally a curious sort of sobbing gurgle would find its way up from the depth. Beyond these there was nothing to tell of the things that were hidden beneath. As I stood there it came to me how wonderfully things had worked out. The entrance to the place whence the swine creatures had come was sealed up by a power that made me feel there was nothing more to fear from them. And yet with the feeling there was a sensation that now— I should never learn anything further of the place from which those dreadful things had come. It was completely shut off and concealed from human curiosity forever. Strange, in the knowledge of that underground hell-hole, how opposite has been the naming of the pit. One wonders how it originated and when. 
Naturally, one concludes that the shape and depth of the ravine would suggest the name Pit. Yet is it not possible that it has all along held a deeper significance, a hint? Could one but have guessed of the greater, more stupendous pit that lies far down in the earth beneath this old house? Under this house? Even now the idea is strange and terrible to me, for I have proved beyond doubt that the pit yawns right below the house, which is evidently supported somewhere above the center of it upon a tremendous arched roof of solid rock. It happened in this wise that, having occasion to go down to the cellars, the thought occurred to me to pay a visit to the great vault, where the trap is situated, and see whether everything was as I had left it. Reaching the place, I walked slowly up the center, until I came to the trap. There it was, with the stones piled upon it, just as I had seen it last. I had a lantern with me, and the idea came to me that now would be a good time to investigate whatever lay under the great oak slab. Placing the lantern on the floor, I tumbled the stones off the trap, and, grasping the ring, pulled the door open. As I did so, the cellar became filled with the sound of a murmurous thunder that rose from far below. At the same time, a damp wind blew up into my face, bringing with it a load of fine spray. Therewith I dropped the trap hurriedly with a half-frightened feeling of wonder. For a moment I stood puzzled. I was not particularly afraid. The haunting fear of the swine things had left me long ago. But I was certainly nervous and astonished. Then a sudden thought possessed me, and I raised the ponderous door with a feeling of excitement. Leaving it standing upon its end, I seized the lantern and, kneeling down, thrust it into the opening— as I did so, the moist wind and spray drove in my eyes, making me unable to see for a few moments. Even when my eyes were clear, I could distinguish nothing below me save darkness and whirling spray. Seeing that it was useless to expect to make out anything with the light so high, I felt in my pockets for a piece of twine with which to lower it further into the opening. Even as I fumbled, the lantern slipped from my fingers and hurtled down into the darkness— for a brief instant I watched its fall and saw the light shine on a tumult of white foam some eighty or a hundred feet below me. Then it was gone. My sudden surmise was correct, and now I knew the cause of the wet and noise. The great cellar was connected with the pit by means of the trap which opened right above it, and the moisture was the spray rising from the water falling into the depths. In an instant I had an explanation of certain things that had hitherto puzzled me. Now I could understand why the noises, on the first night of the invasion, had seemed to rise directly from under my feet, and the chuckle that had sounded when I first opened the trap. Evidently some of the swine things must have been right beneath me. Another thought struck me. Were the creatures all drowned? Would they drown? I remembered how unable I had been to find any traces to show that my shooting had been really fatal. Had they life as we understand life, or were they ghouls? These thoughts flashed through my brain as I stood in the dark searching my pockets for matches. I had the box in my hand now, and striking a light I stepped to the trap-door and closed it. Then I piled the stones back upon it, after which 
I made my way out from the cellars. And so I suppose the water goes on, thundering down into that bottomless hell pit. Sometimes I have an inexplicable desire to go down to the great cellar, open the trap and gaze into the impenetrable spray-damp darkness. At times the desire becomes almost overpowering in its intensity. It is not mere curiosity that prompts me, but more as though some unexplained influence were at work. Still I never go and intend to fight down the strange longing and crush it, even as I would the unholy thought of self-destruction. This idea of some intangible force being exerted may seem reasonless, yet my instinct warns me that it is not so. In these things, reason seems to me less to be trusted than instinct. One thought there is in closing that impresses itself upon me with ever-growing insistence. It is that I live in a very strange house, a very awful house, and I have begun to wonder whether I am doing wisely in staying here. Yet, if I left, where could I go and still obtain the solitude and the sense of her presence that alone make my old life bearable? Author's footnote. An apparently unmeaning interpolation. I can find no previous reference in the manuscript to this matter. It becomes clearer, however, in the light of succeeding incidents. End author's footnote. End of chapter 13. Recording by John Van Stan. Savannah, Georgia.